In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Last week, we spoke about chapter 3 from the first letter of St. Paul to Timothy, in which St. Paul discussed the qualifications of the bishop and the deacons. In chapter 4, St. Paul emphasizes that the main function of the bishop is to guard the faith, the true faith. The bishop guards the faith by preaching it. God entrusted us with the word of truth in order to preach it. Also, he guards the faith by confirming the believers in it. How they apply the truth in their life, how to live by it. And number three, by defending the faith against the heretics. So the bishop protects and guards the faith by preaching it, by confirming the believers in it, and also by defending it. In chapter 4, St. Paul spoke about three points. Number one, the prediction of coming heresies and coming apostasy. Number two, what is the duty of St. Timothy toward the apostasy? And then he concluded the chapter by general instructions and directions to St. Paul. In verse, uh, verse 1, we read, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Now the Spirit expressly says, the Spirit here is the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit proclaimed and declared in many places in the Scripture, both in Old Testament and in New Testament, that in the later times, some will depart from faith. That's what we call apostasy, al-irtidad. For example, I give you just some references. Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. Daniel chapter 8, verse 23. Daniel chapter 11, verse 30. And also the words of our Lord Jesus Christ about the end of the world 
as we read it in Matthew chapter 24 from verse 11 to verse 24. In all these references and in others, the Holy Spirit expressly says that in the end of the times, some will depart from the faith. Later times can refer to either the new covenant, the time that started by the birth of Christ, or can refer to the time that comes immediately before the appearance of Antichrist. As St. Paul said that the Lord Jesus Christ will not come except after the apostasy and the appearance of Antichrist. As we read this in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. So the apostasy will be uh, very uh, evident before the appearance of the Antichrist and this is one of the sure signs of the end of the ages and the end of the world. But also from the beginning of Christianity in every century we read about people who departed from the faith. And actually, in Ephesus, there were some people who were departing from the faith, and that's why St. Paul was giving instructions to Timothy how to guard the faith against those uh, heretics. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons St. Paul is explaining why the people will depart from faith for two reasons number one they will listen to the deceiving spirits and also, they will adopt the doctrines of the demons. Satan uses deception to make the people drift from the true way. That is how Satan convinced Eve to eat from the forbidden tree. As we say in the Divine Liturgy, when we fell through the deception of the serpent and the disobedience of your commands. And as some father said, all the power of Satan lies in his ability to deceive. And if Satan lost this ability to deceive, he will be powerless. So, these people will depart from faith because they believe the deceiving spirits. 
And St. Paul, when he used the word deceiving spirit, he was comparing the deceiving spirit with the Holy Spirit, which is called the spirit of truth. So the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth that teaches the truth. But the spirit of Satan is a deceiving spirit. And he called these teachings as doctrines of demons. Because any teaching against the truth is from the demons. So the teaching can either true or false. The true teaching comes from God, from the spirit of truth. And the false teaching comes from Satan, the deceiving spirit, the demons. Verse 2, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Speaking lies in hypocrisy. How the false teacher deceive others? Their words are lies because their words are not the truth. But they clothe themselves with sheep clothing. They appear godly and righteous in order to deceive the people. That's why the Lord instructed us to beware of false prophets who are like wolves but clothed with sheep clothing. Hypocrisy is the tool of the false teachers to deceive the people and make the people believe their lies. Speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. What does it mean having their own conscience seared with a hot iron? This can either imply their extreme insensibility. When their conscience is cauterized by the hot iron, they become insensitive to their deceiving actions. So they deceive the people and destroy their eternal life, but they lost their sensitivity because their conscience is cauterized, is seared with hot iron. But also, maybe St. Paul was referring to a very common custom that was known at that time. They used to brand the criminals by making uh, like a certain uh, brands on them in order to be known. So St. Paul is saying that the false teachers 
bear the marks of their hypocrisy in their conscience. So, as if they were marked by a hot iron in their conscience. So that when they stand before the throne of God, they, they cannot argue with God. And they appear as uh, uh, criminals because they drift the people away from the truth and destroy their eternal life. So this image is taken from the branding of criminals that was known at the time. In verse 3, St. Paul gave two examples of their hypocrisy. When he said, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Forbidding to marry in order to appear as morally perfect and as spiritual. So they are using this teaching in order to convince others how strict they are and how conservative they are. But it's clear that this teaching contradicts the whole scripture in which God sanctified this sacrament, this mystery of marriage. Also, they commanded to abstain from foods. This is what we call false spiritualism. When they say we don't eat meat or we don't eat this or we don't eat that, again in order to appear spiritual. And here just I like to differentiate between false spiritualism and fasting and self-control. Because during fasting, we abstain from certain foods. But when we abstain from certain foods in, in fasting, the purpose is to develop self-control and to grow toward godliness. That's why the church teaches us if in fasting you focused only on the ascetic part, then you are torturing your body. But fasting is a tool to develop self-control and opportunity in order to nourish your spirit so you grow toward godliness. But those people were teaching to abstain from certain foods as unclean. They have in mind the, uh, Judea, uh, the, the Jewish teaching in which the food was differentiated into clean food and unclean food. 
In fasting, when we abstain from certain food, we don't abstain because they are unclean, but we abstain in order to develop and to exercise self-control. That's why when we break the fast, we eat this food. But if we believe that they are unclean, we wouldn't eat it. And St. Paul start to explain the falsehood of this teaching to abstain from certain food. When he said, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So this food is created by God. And if it is created by God, how can I claim that this type of food is unclean? You may ask, why in the Old Testament God said to Moses that certain food are clean and certain food are unclean? There are two reasons behind this. In the Old Testament, the people were like beginner in their relationship with God, like they are in, in first grade. That's why God won't emphasize the concept of pure and impure, clean and unclean. And in order to emphasize this concept, he has to emphasize it in a physical and materialistic thing, sensible thing, things I can see and watch in order to understand this is clean and this is unclean. But in the New Testament, now we are not beginners in our relationship with God. Now in the New Covenant, we have a, a, a deeper relationship with God. That's why now we understand that all the food is clean. All the creation of God is clean. And what is clean and what's unclean refers to the disobedience of the commandment of God. When I disobey His commandment, when I don't fulfill His purpose in my life, this is the impurity and the uncleanness. Also another reason why God in the Old Testament instructed the people to abstain from certain food in order to protect them from some diseases. So that's to say for health purpose. You imagine that the children of Israel were traveling for 40 years in the wilderness of Sinai. And as you know, there are some types of animals that uh, if you eat them without proper cooking, maybe they can have some worms and they can uh, bring some diseases. And these diseases can be epidemic. So 
these diseases can destroy all the children of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. And definitely in the wilderness of Sinai, there was no physicians with them. There, there is no medicine at the time. That's why the Lord instructed them to abstain from certain food for health purpose. But now in the New Testament, with the medicine and the improvement of science and that's why there is no fear from eating such food. But St. Paul said something very interesting here when he said, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Although all the partakers, sorry, although all men, all people are partakers in this food, which are created by God, only the believers fulfill God's design in creation by partaking of them with thanksgiving. When God gave us his gifts, and one of these gifts are the food. God's design for us, when we receive the food, we receive it with thanksgiving. So, it will turn into Eucharistia, into thanksgiving. We receive the food from God, and we eat it with thanksgiving. So, only those who believe in God, they will give thanks to God when they eat. So those the believers are the only people who fulfill God's design, God's plan for us when we receive the food and we eat them uh, with thanksgiving. But others either abstain from the food, from certain types of food, or in partaking of them, they do not do so with thanksgiving. They eat without thanksgiving. That's why the church teaches us it's important before we eat to pray and to give thanks to God to all the blessings that he gave us. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself gave us example in the miracle of feeding the multitude from the five loaves and two fish, he lifted up his eyes and he gave thanks and he blessed in order to teach us that when we receive, when we partake of food, we have to receive it with thanksgiving and we have to pray before eating. In this verse also, St. Paul defined who are the believers when he said which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So the believers are those who know the truth and abide in it, not those 
who appear godly may be to deceive people. And here just I want to differentiate between morality and spirituality. Because many people ask, there are many people who are good. They don't lie. They don't cheat on others. They don't steal. They don't uh, swear. They are faithful. They are honest. But they are not Christian. So how God would deal with them? This is what we call it morality. Maybe there is some people, there are some people who are morally good. But what makes me inherit the kingdom of God is not the morality. It is the spirituality. And what's spirituality? Spirituality is my relationship with God. When I do everything for his own glory. And one important prerequisite for spirituality is the knowledge of the truth. Because if I don't know the truth, then I will worship God in the wrong way. And my understanding of God and my understanding of his teaching will be also false. And how to apply his word in my life will be also false. So spirituality comes from knowing the truth and abiding in the truth, living by the truth. But morality is to live according to the moral code, to live according to the direction of my conscience. And I'm sure you know that the moral code differs from one place to place, from one culture to culture, from a time to time. But the truth does not differ from one time to time. So the believers who know the truth fulfill God's design in their life. Like if you have a son and also there is a maid or a servant in your house. And this servant is morally good. He's honest. He's faithful. But your inheritance will go to your son or to this servant will go to your son because the relationship only sons and children are eligible for inheritance. Again, through our relationship with God, which I call it spirituality, we become his children and we become eligible for inheritance. So those who are morally good, they need to know the truth and accept the truth abide in the truth in order to be saved. And this is our responsibility. And instead of asking what is their fate, let us go and try to introduce Christ to them. Let us preach the word of God to them. Let us bring them 
to the knowledge of the truth, then we can win these souls to Christ. Then in verse 4, St. Paul continues his argument why abstaining from certain food is wrong. He said, for every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. Every creature of God is good. So the food also is gift from God. And as a gift from God, we ought not to despise it. When we say, this is unclean, I'm not going to eat it, we should abstain from it, as if I'm despising the, word of, uh, the, uh, the gift of God. But St. Paul said something here very important again. When he said, if it is received with thanksgiving. Nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. He is elaborating more about why we should give thanks to God, why we should pray. Food, although pure in themselves, become impure if we receive them with unthankful mind. So if I received the gift of God with attitude of unthankfulness, it will be impure to me. As we read in Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, Sorry, in verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. The same meaning we read it in Romans chapter 14 and verse 6. He who observes the day, observes it, observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat, and give God thanks. So, whether we eat or I don't eat, I should give God thanks. And that is what we do when we are fasting. When we are fasting, we give God thanks for the food, even that we abstain from it. Because it is clean, but we abstain from it in order to exercise ourselves toward godliness. But if I received the food with unthankfulness, then it will be impure for me. And in verse 5, St. Paul says, For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. When St. Paul says it is sanctified by the word of God, 
we can understand it in one of two ways. Sanctified means it is set apart. God separated for us to use it by his commandment as we read in Genesis chapter 1 verse 29. When the Lord said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. So, when God assigned this food for us, as if God sanctified this food and this creation for us to receive it with thanksgiving, but also, when we are about to use it, we have to sanctify it, we have to bless it by the prayer, thanksgiving, and the word of God. And that's why usually when we pray before eating, we pray, give thanks to God, and we should use some verses of uh, the scripture from the word of God and by the way because uh, usually many of the fasting of the church uh, the abstinence ends around 3 p.m. which is the time of the ninth hour that's why the gospel of the ninth hour in the Agbeya is about the miracle of uh, feeding the multitude from the five loaves and two fish. So as if we are praying the ninth hour, then we eat our food, so the food will be blessed by the word of God. But St. Paul is not speaking only about the food, but speaking about every creature. As he said in verse 4, for every creature of God is good, and nothing is speed is to be refused if it is received to thanksgiving for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer so if you want to bless anything you need to bless it or sanctify it by the word of God thanksgiving and prayer St. Paul also is referring that the creation of God after the fall is under the bondage of vanity and corruption as we read in Romans chapter 8 verse 19 that after the fall all the creation is suffering from the bondage of vanity and corruption that's why through prayer supplications thanksgiving and the word of God we sanctify this creation that is now under the bondage of corruption. In verse 6, St. Paul encouraged Timothy, his disciple, to be diligent to teach the people all these doctrines and he explained to him 
what is or what are the criteria and characteristics of the good minister of Jesus Christ? He told him, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine, which you have carefully followed. In this verse, St. Paul mentioned three characteristics of the good minister. Number one, he has to be nourished in the words of faith. Nourished in the words of faith. Which means he understands. He is like saturated by the word of truth. He has this deep understanding. Like as if he digested the word of God and the word of faith, nourished in it. But to understand it and to know it is not enough. He also have to carefully follow the truth. He has to carefully follow the good uh, doctrine. As he told them, nourished in the words of faith, and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. Number three, then he has to instruct the people and the brethren with the truth. So, St. Timothy as a bishop, he has to be nourished in the word of faith and the good doctrine. Number two, he has to carefully follow the word of truth. Then he has to instruct and teach the brethren, his flock, in these things. If he satisfied these three points, then he will be considered a good, faithful, and wise minister of Jesus Christ. In verse 7, St. Paul adds two more characteristics of the good uh, minister. So we can say uh, the characteristics of the good minister are five. In verse 7 he said, But reject profane and old wives' fables, and exercise yourself toward godliness. So the two characteristics in verse 7, to reject, the false teaching, and also to exercise himself toward godliness. So if we say what are the five characteristics of the good minister, number one, to be nourished in the word of faith and good doctrine. Number two, to carefully follow the good doctrine. Number three, to instruct the, the people and the brethren with this teaching. Number four, to reject the false teaching. And number five, to exercise himself toward godliness. Why St. Paul described the false teaching as profane? Because they lead away from godliness. He called them profane because this false teaching will lead the people away from godliness. 
And he also described the false teaching as old wives' fables, like the myth that's usually are told by the grandma, old wives' fables. So he said, these false teaching are like myth, they are not true. So you need to reject these uh, false teaching. And then he told them, exercise yourself toward godliness. So the goal of self-discipline or the goal of self-control is godliness, is to attain godliness. And here St. Paul will start to compare between some exercises that's directed toward godliness and exercises that directed toward uh, self-righteousness and hypocrisy. For example, those false teachers who were abstaining from certain food and uh, forbidding to marry, we may say, but this will help them to develop good self-control when they forbid to marry and when they abstain from certain food, then all these exercises will help them to abstain from uh, sin because they will be very, very strong in their will. But St. Paul is saying, if your goal from the exercises is godliness, then you are walking in the right way. But if your goal is to show off and to appear as godly, then all these exercises will not help you. That's why in verse 8, he said, For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things. Badly exercised profits a little. When you exercise your body by abstaining from certain food, or when you, uh, any kind of, of exercise that you strengthen your will, yes, it can help a little. It can help your inward man a little. So St. Paul is not denying that these exercises may help the inward man. But he said, if the goal of these exercises are not godliness, then the profit is very, very little if we compare it with godliness. Godliness is profitable for all things. When you exercise yourself toward godliness, it is profitable for all things. Why? He said, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Means what? When I exercise myself toward godliness, I will enjoy my life here on earth 
in the right way. And I will have blessed life here on earth beside the eternal life hereafter. That's why he said, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. People who live with God, they are happy and joyful both here on earth and also in the life to come. Unfortunately, many people think that when you live to God, you live with God and live to God and you dedicate yourself to uh, the life of godliness, this will take a lot of fun away from you and you will not enjoy your life. But St. Paul is saying there is no joy, there is no uh, fun in living away from God. Maybe you can have joy, but this joy and happiness is temporary. Like the joy of the prodigal son when he was in the far country. It was temporary. And it ended what in what? It ended in what? Ended in, in sadness and depression. He even desired to eat what the swine eat, but nobody gave to him. But the joy that comes from the life of godliness is permanent here on earth and in the eternal life hereafter. Verse 9, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. So St. Paul is affirming the assertion that the godliness is, uh, the godliness have, has a promise of the life that now is and the life uh, hereafter, the eternal life. That's why he said, this is a faithful saying and words of all acceptance. Don't let Satan cast doubt on this teaching. Don't let Satan try to convince you that if you live a godly life with God, you will not enjoy your life. This is a false teaching. But the faithful saying, which is worthy to all acceptance, is godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. But lest some people understand the word having the promise of the life that now is, means we will not suffer here on earth. That's why St. Paul in verse 10 said, for to this end we both labor and suffer reproach. So how we reconcile these two verses, verse 8 and verse 10? In verse 8, St. Paul said, godliness have the has the promise of the life that now is which means I will enjoy my life here on earth. But in verse 10, St. Paul is saying, 
for this end, for to this end, in order to be godly, we both labor and suffer reproach. So, how can we reconcile these two uh, verses together? It doesn't mean that as a believer exercising yourself toward godliness, that you will be exempted from the natural evils and you will enjoy the world prosperity. No. Actually, you may suffer and you need to labor and to suffer reproach for the name of Christ. But while you are laboring and suffering reproach for the name of Christ, Christ will be with you and he will grant you this peace that surpasses all understanding. As the Lord said, in the world you will suffer many tribulations, but I will see you and you will rejoice and nobody can take your joy away from you. We may be placed in uh, the lion's den with Daniel, but God will send his angel to shut the mouth of the lions. Maybe we will be placed in the furnace of fire with the three young men, but God will join us in the furnace of fire and he will turn it into dew. That's why during the time of martyrdoms, uh, during the time of martyrdom, all the martyrs who were suffering for the name of Christ, they were peaceful and joyful. And that is the mystery of the cross. It joins the joy and the peace of God while we, we suffer. So in the midst of the suffering and the midst of affliction and the midst of the persecution, we will uh, have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. But what is my motive in order to accept, to labor and to suffer, suffer reproach? St. Paul said, because we trust in the living God. We trust in the living God. We trust that he will save me. He will save me here on earth and he will save me in the life after. Because of this trust, I labor and suffer reproach for his name. Confident that when I live a godly life, I will have joy and peace here on earth, even in the midst of the suffering and persecution. And also, I will have the eternal peace in the eternal life. Because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. God is the Savior. Is the Savior. He saves me here on earth to have joy and peace. And he will save me also in the eternal life. He is Savior of, of all men because he died for everybody. But especially for those who believe, because only those who believe 
accepted his gift of salvation. So although he died for everybody, but not everybody will be saved. Although he is the savior of all body and all men, but not all men will be saved. Only those who believe in him and accept him will be saved. His blood is enough to forgive all sins for all people in all generations. But only those who are saved, only those who believed in him and accepted him will be saved. That's why St. Paul said he is the savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Savior of all men because he died for everybody. But especially for those who believe because only those who believe will be saved. Because they did not reject, did not refuse the gift of God. So those that perish, perish through their own fault. They cannot blame God for it. Verse 11, these things command and teach. St. Paul is saying to Timothy, let it be the sum and substance of your preaching. That true religion, true godliness, is profitable for both worlds, earth and heaven. But he told them, command. Command, as a bishop, he is telling him to teach with authority. He didn't tell him, recommend or suggest. No, he is telling him, command and teach, teach with authority. Sometimes, in order just to be politically correct, we introduce the word of God as a recommendation, not as a commandment. You cannot recommend the word of God. It's a commandment. That's why he told him, command and teach. Teach that vice destroys both body and soul. Vice makes the person suffer here on earth and in eternal life. Teach that Christ tasted death for every man. But those who believe in him will be saved. Only those who believe in him will be saved. From verse 12 to the rest of the chapter, St. Paul start to give Timothy some general directions as a bishop. Timothy was young in his age, but he became bishop to Ephesus. That's why he told him, let no one despise your youth. How? How we let others respect me and honor me? He told him, Act so as to be respected in spite of your youth. You cannot demand respect, but when you act in such a way, you will earn the respect. That's why he told him, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. The bishop or the priest cannot demand respect, but he should act in a way to be respected in spite of his young age. 
In the same way, anybody in a place of authority, like parents, like husbands, like you need to act in a way in order to be respected and not to let others despise you. How? He said, be an example. So the true way of making men not to despise me is to be an example. To be an example, St. Paul said in, in six areas. Number one, in word. In word, in all that you say, whether in public or in private, especially as a bishop in the word of doctrine, you, you have to teach the word of truth. In conduct, in your behavior, the word that you are saying should be consistent with your behavior. You need to apply the word of God to your behavior. People will not respect the person when there is inconsistency between his words and his action. That's why you have to be consistent in your words and in your conduct. In love, show love to God and to men and show that this is the principle and the motive of all your conduct. Why you behave in this way? Because you love God and you love others. In love and in spirit. In spirit means in the manner and disposition in which you do all things. Some people do charitable deeds, but for example, they do it in a superior spirit. I am better than you. This is not the right spirit. So, how you present yourself, what is the manner in which you conduct yourself? Be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. In faith, being faithful to God, being confident in God, the people should, show, uh, should see in you your trust and confidence in God and also your faithfulness to God. Be faithful unto this and you will receive the crown of life. And in purity, because of his young age, as a bishop and as a leader of the church, St. Paul told him, uh, show chastity of body, and mind. So these are the six areas in which the leaders in general should be an example, but specifically the clergy and the bishops should be an example, an example in word, conduct, love, uh, spirit, faith, and purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. 
as we said in chapter one, he told him uh, that I am coming soon to you, but if I delay, uh, I, I will delay in order to learn how to manage the church of God. So he's telling him you need to give attention to three activities till I come to you. The first activity is reading, second is exhortation, third is uh, doctrine. What's reading? As a bishop and as a leader, he should read in order to be enlightened, in order to have wisdom. St. Anthony the Great said that reading in the scripture will enlighten and purify the mind. But also reading can mean here the public reading of the scripture with the believers. Like when we meet in the liturgy, we read together the scripture in the divine liturgy. So he is telling him, you need to read the scripture with your flock. Exhortation is how to apply the scripture in their life, how to apply the word of God in the people's life. Exhortation usually is addressed to the feeling and to the will. How I apply this commandment in my life. But doctrine is teaching an explanation of the scripture, teaching the truth, and usually doctrine addressed uh, to the understanding. So exhortation like is how to apply the scripture, but doctrine how to understand the scripture. So the three activities are to read the scripture with the people, then to teach them how to apply it in their life, that's exhortation, and to explain the truth in it, that is doctrine. And now he is reminding him, it is your duty to guard the faith by preaching it, but confirming the people in it, by defending it. Why? Because you are a bishop. You are ordained as a bishop. And you received this gift of the priesthood, which you will be accountable before God, and you will stand before the throne of God to give an account for this gift. That's why in verse 14 he told him, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Do not neglect the gift by letting it lie unused. We received the gift because in, in the ordination of the priest or the bishop, the Holy Spirit dwells on him, and he received the gift of the Spirit. But this gift, I need to use it. I need to kindle it. That's why he told him, do not neglect this gift. If you don't use it, if you are not diligent in teaching the people, in defending the faith, in confirming the people in it, in preaching the word of God, then you are neglecting your duty. You are neglecting the gift of God that is in you. And here we understand that priesthood is a gift of the Spirit.
Priesthood is a gift of the Spirit. Do not neglect the gift that's in you, which was given to you. It's a gift given. How? By two things. By the prophecy and lying on, on the hands of the eldership. What does it mean by prophecy? Priesthood is a calling from God. And who is the prophet? The prophet is the one who reveals and declares the will of God. So when the leader of the church declare by the Holy Spirit the will of God to the called ones to the office of the priesthood, this is called a prophecy. When the leader of the church said to somebody, the Holy Spirit is calling you to this ministry, then that's a prophecy because the prophet is the one who reveals the will of God. And laying on of hands, that is the ordination and consecration. Because in, in, in the priesthood, after the person accepts the calling, he has to be ordained. And ordination of a bishop, as the canons of the apostle says, a bishop should be ordained at least from three bishops. Cannot be ordained from one bishop. That's why he said, by the hands of the eldership, laying on of the hands of the eldership. Yes, there is one who is presiding over the ceremony. Like His Holiness the Pope presides over the ceremony. But he has to have with him the Holy Synod participating in the ordination, in the ordination of the bishops. Uh, that's why uh, in, in, in the second letter to Timothy, St. Paul mentioned uh, uh, the gift of the priesthood by my hand. So there is no contradiction when he said by my hand or by the hands of the eldership. By my hand because he was the one who presided over uh, the ceremony. But by the hand of the eldership because uh, many uh, bishops participated in the ordination. But for the priests, a priest can be ordained by one bishop. But a bishop has to be ordained at least by three bishops. Verse 15, meditate on these things. Meditate on these things means make these things revolve frequently in your mind. Think about it a lot. Consider deeply their nature and importance. And let all your conduct flow from this inward feeling and conviction. Think about your calling, your duty, your accountability. And when you meditate on these things, you will be able to give yourself entirely to them. Complete and entire self-dedication to God and to the service. Meditate on these things Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. So in order to be successful, in order to progress toward perfection and the ideal image of the bishop, you have to meditate on your calling, on your duties, on your accountability, and also to uh, give yourself entirely to this calling. 
evident to all that your progress may be evident to all, not for your own glory, but in order to win the souls for the winning of souls. Verse 16, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Take heed to yourself, watch your piety, watch your godliness. And to the doctrine, watch the orthodoxy of the doctrine. Watch that you are teaching the truth. And also, watch that your life and your conduct is consistent with your teaching. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Because the teaching will be of no avail unless one's own life accord with it. And the opposite also is true. One's own purity of life is not enough unless he is diligent in teaching. That's why he has to take heed to himself and to the doctrine. Continue in them because that's your calling. That's your duty. It is not a task that you will do it and then you rest from it. The rest of your life you have to continue and give yourself entirely to this calling. And when you are faithful to your calling, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. When you are faithful to your calling and to your duty uh, to others, then you are promoting your own salvation and the salvation of those who hear you, which means if I conduct myself, myself unfaithfully, this put my own salvation in risk and also the salvation of the people that hear me. And this is the, 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 the great responsibility of the bishop, that his own salvation and the salvation of his people are linked together. That's why he told him, continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Glory be to God forever and ever.